Welcome to the Ideas on Stage podcast, your regular insight into leadership communication. Hey, Michael, welcome to the show. Thank you, Andrea. I'm happy to be here. Thank you for attending, for accepting my invite. And as I told you before we got started, I read one of your books, The Craft of Scientific Presentations, which, by the way, for our listeners, I highly recommend it. Great book. I enjoyed it very much. I read it a few years ago. So for me, it's a fantastic opportunity to pick your brain today. I know that a lot of the ideas that you've shared in the book, of course, apply really well to scientific and and that that kind of presentation, but to many other types of presentations as well. And and I know, Michael, that you are, I can say maybe on on a personal mission to increase the level of presentations by scientists and engineers. You think that if you, and I agree with you, that if we look at the way most scientists, most engineers, most people really give prepared design presentations, we can do much, much better. Can you tell us your view? Why do you think we can do much better? Well, Andrea, I think what happened is, is as a world, we got a little bit off course on making presentations in the mid-1980s. And what happened at that time, because I'm old enough to be a, have been around at that time, is that there were a lot of people making quite different types of presentations. And there were some, some great examples in science and engineering. It was Richard Feynman and Linus Pauling and Jane Goodall making presentations. But what happened is is that Microsoft released PowerPoint. And and you have to understand, at that time, PowerPoint was a welcome addition in that it gave us, for the first time, an opportunity to create slides with lettering of different sizes, sizes that people could read. But what happened is, is that the defaults of PowerPoint were locked into a form. And a lot of that was just because of the computer architecture of the day. But they were locked into a form that made it difficult to include images. That was one. And then two, gave users the impression that you should use bulleted lists, that that was a hallmark of strong presentations. And what happened is, much to the surprise of everyone, is that that default just spread like the COVID virus around the world and people adopted it. And soon after, there was a pushback from those who had seen lots of other types of presentations saying this model for presentations where you have some topic at the, at the top of the slide and then a list of bullets and sub bullets and sad to say sub sub bullets beneath it 
was 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 not at all optimal. And and I'd say that's particularly true when you have technical information. You just have complex ideas. And so I think the world kind of got set back and then there's been a march to try to correct it. And certainly you have seen that with Edward Tufte and probably in 2003 came out with a, 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 a real important document challenging PowerPoints defaults. You certainly see that in TED Talks. And so yeah. I, I've, I've tried to be part of that crusade and in particular focusing on scientists and engineers. Yeah, and the way you've tried in a very effective way to be part of that crusade in the correction process is with your approach, which is the assertion evidence approach. Now, for those who don't know it, uh -huh. those who don't know about your approach, and, and then we are going to look at the specific principles within the approach. But can you tell us just a, a high a top level overview of what this approach is about? Yeah. And, and so one thing I will want to talk a little bit about is, is why are PowerPoint's defaults weak? But before I do that, just top level approach of the assertion evidence is that speakers think about their presentations, not as a series of topics and subtopics, but they think about their presentations as a sequence of messages, messages that are part of an argument, and that then they support those messages with evidence. And for many of us, visual evidence is most effective. I mean, it could be, you could, you could just not have, you could not just necessarily have a slide. You could just make a, a logical argument. You could tell a story. But for when a slide is valuable for the audience, then having a a having visual evidence to support the message that is the approach and then you as a speaker so that's principle number one build your talk on messages principle number two support those messages with visual evidence and then principle number three is describe that visual evidence by fashioning sentences on the spot as opposed to memorizing or reading yeah. yeah and before we explore these principles in a bit more detail let's go back to powerpoint defaults yeah. why so you described already that that the default powerpoint defaults leaders and lead scientists and engineers to create slides that are ineffective from a communication perspective yeah. Why is that? Can we unpack this in a little bit more detail? What, yeah. What's the problem, really? Yeah. So yeah, let's 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 let, let let's let's unpack that. And, and I'm going to even take one more step back, and that is 
what are we trying to do in the presentation? What, what are our assumptions? And so my assumptions are as follows, that in your presentation, you want to present in a fashion such that the audience understands your content, remembers your content. And memory is something a lot of people don't appreciate the importance of. Because a lot of times people go to a presentation, they, they hear it, they understand it at the time, but then when they go back to their group or whatever, they don't necessarily remember things. So memory is important. And then the third one is that they believe it. <laughs> I've been to presentations where I understood it and I remembered it, but I didn't believe it. So if you've got to have all three, you got to have all three. So, so, so that's, that is our goal. And then when we think about having slides, you know, a question that I think is really important for everyone to ask at every single scene is, does a slide help the audience understand, remember, or believe? And so we're going to assume, we're going to assume a yes. And so then how do you design the slides? And, and, and the problem with PowerPoint is, uh, PowerPoint's defaults. The program is a powerful program. I, I think there's some great things that people don't use in the program. Uh, but uh, so it's a, it's a, it's it's a it's a powerful program. But the defaults lead people to put too much text on the slide. That's problem number one. I've done surveys of, I mean, hundreds of scientists and engineers around the world. And, and what I found is that there are three problems that just are talked about over and over again. And number one is too much text, okay? Too much text. I'll come back to that in a second. Number two is the slide is cluttered. The audience isn't sure where to look when the presenter is speaking. And, and so then it, it doesn't, it no longer becomes a visual aid. If somebody is reading something else while they're supposed to be looking at, at another part of the slide, that can just cause confusion. And then the third thing that people talk about is text is too small, they can't read it. And, and, and the, the example we hear time and again in science and engineering concerns axes of graphs. If you can't read the axes of a graph, then it just, it, the value of that graph plummets. So, so those, I would say, are the three big problems. And, and what's interesting is, we, I mean, we started here talking about the mid-1980s. That's when PowerPoint came out. And, and so you think, well, the people who designed it, well, you know, they should have paid attention to, you know, the, the psychology research on how people learn. But in defense of those, there were two, two individuals, Robert Gaskins, who was an entrepreneur, and Dennis Austin, a computer scientist. Those were the two people who came out with the, the program. In defense of Gaskins and Austin, there was no real psychology research for how people learn when they're listening to someone and then watching the screen. But Soon after PowerPoint came out, then there was a, a real interesting piece of research that came out of Canada from a, 
cognitive psychologist by the name of Alan Pivio. And what Pivio found in his experiments is that people will, you know, when, when, when they're in a presentation, that written words and spoken words are processed in the same part of the brain. And he also found that images are processed in a different part of the brain. And then what happened is other researchers then started doing research based on, you know, that particular premise. And, and a real interesting research came out of Australia, John Sweller, who asked the question, well, if written words and spoken words are processed in the same part of the brain, could that part of the brain become overloaded, much as a computer processing unit can become overloaded when it tries to do too many tasks? And so he did experiments. He had rooms where people just listened, rooms where people just read, rooms where people listened and then read words on a screen. And when there weren't many words on the screen, and when those words reinforced what was being said, that third group had the highest comprehension. But what he found is, is there became this point at which that, that room that was doing the best, all of a sudden started doing the worst. When you would increase the number of words to a place where what, what Sweller said is that the audience became overloaded cognitively. And, and what Sweller also said that I think is really important is that what most people, the number of words that most people put on PowerPoint slides goes beyond that threshold. So that, so that even though audiences might hunker down and, and be able to read through the first couple of slides, they become, they become tired. And in the middles of presentations, they just can't keep up. Yeah, and a couple, of, a couple of thoughts here from my side, Michael, because one is that, first of all, I, I love this because everything we are talking about today comes from what science tells us about what works and what doesn't work from a communication perspective. If we look at how people actually learn things, just so you know, recently for this podcast, I had a conversation with Dr. John Medina, the, the author of Brain Rules, and with him, we had a, a similar conversation. So I, I love to understand what science tells us about what works and what doesn't work from a communication perspective. And also, so what you shared with us so far is very much connected in my view to the second principle of your of your approach that you should support your messages with visual evidence and not with text because we said science tells us that people can't read or listen at the same time and by the way michael i find it fascinating that piece of research that that you shared with us that tells us that the written text on a slide is processed in, a, in exactly the same part of the brain that processes the spoken text so that's that's great now let me let me go back to principle number one of your approach, you say that we should build our presentations on messages, not topics. Yeah. Can, for audience, can you help us understand what you mean here? Yeah. So, so Andre, this is a really good question because it sounds as if I'm saying the fewer the words, the better. And... And in a sense, that's true. But my principle 
my first principle seems to go against what I'm saying, because what I'm, I'm telling people is, is not to write results at the top of their slide, but to think about what is the result that you want the audience to walk away with. And so I'm going to ask people to actually write more words than is typically done in the headline. But, and so this is kind of a scientific analogy, but we think about that headline as a filter. That once we write, here is the main message that I want the audience to gather from this scene, that that, that means we don't have to write a lot of other things because we have in a sense focused on just supporting that message. Yeah, as a speaker, you might give some tangential information, but rather than putting that on the slide, you just fold that into your speech. And so what you have then on the slide supporting that message is then the visual evidence. So what, what would be an example here of a message? And I'm just going to, if it's okay, I'm just going to kind of grab a couple of ones that I, I, I really like. So think of here. And as you, as you do that, this is, this is so useful, of course, for scientific presentations, presentations by engineers, but also for business presentations. For example, as you look for your examples, I'm thinking in a business presentation, often we have graphs, bar charts, things like that. And you're right, the default is that we use the title as a generic title. And it's, a, for example, number of whatever it is, let's think about an object, number of bikes sold. And then we have a, a graph that shows the number of bikes sold. Instead of that, we can say in the headline, 5,000 bikes sold in 2007. And then you support that with visual evidence. Yeah. And, and, and that's the idea. In the meantime, did you find something by any chance, Michael? Yeah, I mean, it's just, so, so a big thing people talk about today is they talk about additive manufacturing or 3D printing. Yep. And so somebody here at, at our school, somebody's done a lot of work on how you can change things with 3D printing. In other words, I mean, what are, what are the things, what are the factors that, uh, that affect what, what an object that's 3D printed, what it looks like? And interestingly, I mean, this sounds kind of funny, but it is what's called the build direction. So 3D printing occurs, you have a powder, you shine a laser on it, it heats it up, and then when it cools, it kind of forms something. But let's say you're just building a cylinder. So a cylinder is kind of simple. Well, you could build it as a spokestack going up like that. And so that would be a vertical direction. Or you could turn it 90 degrees and then build it as a pipeline, okay, going in this direction. And and the, and, and the choice you make is, is actually kind of really important 
that's what this work has found is that if you, if you do it as a smoke stack, it just kind of it kind of goes up and it looks really fairly clean. Okay. But if you build it as a pipeline, because there's nothing to support the powder at the top, it kind of caves in. And so you think, oh, well, then that's easy. You just build it this way, except that you can build it at all sorts of different angles. And, and by, by turning it more toward a pipeline, you increase the roughness of the surface. And in some cases that's negative, but in a lot of scientific cases, that's actually positive that you get some heat transfer, for instance, you can get, you can increase things. And so the, the headline of this, of, of the, the scene that shows this results says the build direction affects not only the overall shape, but also the roughness. And that to me is just so much more powerful than build direction. That's yep. what a lot of people would have done or build direction results. But by actually saying, you know, what happens, you have, in a sense, I mean, you have put the audience in a much better position to understand what happened and then to remember it. Yeah, yeah. And, and so to, to summarize for our listeners who are not familiar with, with your work, apart from this conversation now, that's exactly the idea behind the assertion evidence approach. So especially for scientific presentations, you make an assertion and you make it very clear on your slides. Of course, you want to keep it simple, but instead of keeping it generic, you make your assertion clear. And then what's also really important, as Michael was saying before, then the evidence, yes, you want to provide evidence for that that supports the assertion, but the evidence should be visual because we've learned that we can't read really a listen at the same time. So instead of written evidence, we want to have visual evidence. And then there is a third principle, which is around the, the speaker and, and how we prepare, how we speak. Can you tell us more about how you look at that part of the process? Yeah, so, the, you know, for, the, for, for you as a speaker, and, and, and many people have said that using this approach has been, uh, has freed them as speakers and in a sense empowered them as speakers because instead of following a bulleted list chain and I always think about that the poor lion who's in the cage you know just kind of pacing back and forth instead of following that kind of sequence you are now kind of out in front and you're explaining the visual evidence so with the Jacob Snyder was the person who did that work on build direction. So he had three images and he, he was careful. He just showed one first was the, the cylinder as a smokestack. And it showed, showed what, what, the, what the 3D printed version of that looked like. And he explained what it meant. It had different colors depending on how, you know, how uh, close it was to the exact dimensions that were wanted. The colors vary just a little bit. And, but then he brought in, he set up, he brought in that pipeline. And then that, 
there were a lot, I mean, much wider, different colors, and you could see the caving in at the top and, and things, but you could also see the increased roughness. So, but by, by having that, the audience, even though they had to read more words at the top, they had almost no words to read in the body of the slide, just maybe a call out or two, vertical, horizontal, something like that. And that is, that, that is, it's freeing in the sense that he's decided on this sequence of talking about these, but he can, he can change things. He can see that his audience is maybe not understanding, you know, that maybe the, 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 the first graph and then, or the first image and then change on the fly and then spend more time on it. Or he could see, boy, my, you know, my audience is getting tired. He can, he can go faster through it. Whereas if he's got those bullets, he is pretty much wed to talking about things in that order. Yeah, yeah, of course there are, and, and I know that you've also done tests that, that, that shows that there are benefits for the audience and interesting benefits for the presenter itself. Because of course, if we think about it, if we follow a simple and visual approach to slide design, then uh -huh. <laughs> another, let's say, consequence, if we want, is that we need to know what we are talking about as presenters, because we can't just look and read from our slides yeah. because there's nothing to read. And so yeah. that also, as a consequence, allows us to, as presenters, to make a better connection with the audience. So benefits for the audience, for the presenter. Now, another thing I very much liked in your work, Michael, is that although we are talking about scientific presentations, you do, in your book, you do talk about the importance of stories, examples, analogies. Yeah. And, and I know that in some industries, in some areas, a lot of people think that maybe stories or examples, analogies, don't shouldn't have a, a place. Maybe stories are not for scientific presentations. Can you tell us more about your view here? I know that you think that they do, they can have a place, would you like to tell us more about it? Yeah. So, Andrea, one thing that I did when I started studying presentations in science and engineering, I, I, I approached it in a different way than a, maybe a lot of people do. I just said, and I asked a lot of scientists and engineers, who are the best presenters in science and engineering? And, you know, in names such as, Einstein and Feynman and Pauling and Goodall, uh, those names were the ones that I, you know, that I heard. And then I, then I started looking at presentations that they gave and what were their characteristics. And a couple of really interesting characteristics. One is, is they didn't rush. They were patient. They and they and it was really from from early on, before the presentation was given. I mean, when they were planning, they looked at how much time they had, and then they thought about how much they could cover at a level that the audience could understand. And so that to me is just that is so important. 
to do. Because a lot of people, they get the same talk, no matter whether they've got five minutes or 15 minutes or 30 minutes. And with five minutes, they just go really fast. <laughs> and so that's a disaster. But another thing that I noticed is, is that they would use analogies. Okay. And so Feynman, Feynman has this great analogy about when he's talking about electrons and protons, he's, he's, he's talking about them as if they are in a high school marching band. And, you know, this kind of lining up in certain ways and how, you know, they get a little bit out of alignment around the edges and things. And, and but he just, it is so visual and it is so memorable. Uh, Einstein also talked about things he talks about in terms of some nuclear uh, possibility of a nuclear chain reaction occurring. He, he compared it to shooting sparrows in the dark. And it's just, it's, it's using those kinds of real familiar concepts to explain complex ideas that is just such a good practice. So, so powerful in communication. The, I, I think it's something that I might have even learned many years ago in your book that the only way or definitely one of the best way, one of the best ways, if not the best way to, to teach something new, to explain something new is to attach it to something the audience already knows and understand. And that's what we are talking about with analogies, comparison between two things. But sorry, Michael, I think I cut you off. So feel free to continue. Oh, uh, there was, I mean, Andrea, this is a really interesting conversation. And so there are a lot of thoughts coming, coming into play. And one thing I was going to go back to say about delivery is that when you don't have the bullet list, when you show the audience that you own the information, when you're explaining a graph, when you're like a tour guide in a museum, then you accrue much credibility with that audience. That audience is saying, this person owns this information. And, and it's really important that the audience believe in you, no matter whether you're in engineering, science, or business, you're going to end up presenting quite a bit of data. And the audience isn't going to be able to go back and check every data point. They just, they just can't do that. They're, they're in their seats. And so at some point, and this was something Michael Faraday said, I mean, back in the 1800s, but he said, for us, it is, it is really important that the audience believes us. And so he, at that time, stopped reading his, his presentations. He walked out from behind the podium and just addressed the audience. And I think that this approach, the TED style approach, allows people to do that and to just, just show ownership. 
Yeah, and you mentioned data. Let's talk about data as well, Michael, because you're right, you said whether you are a scientist, an engineer, a business professional, you do, we, we do need data. So of course, stories and analogies are very important, but you want to touch the yeah. emotional part, if we want, of our audience's brain, the rational, the analytical part as well. Now, you also talk about, and you gave some useful tips on how to present data in an effective way, how to make it interesting, engaging, memorable. Can you, can you give us some, some, some ideas, some tips here on how to present data so that it means something to the audience? Yeah, I think, I think in a sense, it's kind of interwoven with story in that, in, in that data, if you think about your whole talk as one big story, I like to think about each scene as a vignette. And, and then the, the data that you show becomes, in a sense, where it came from, what it means, how it's, how, how, you know, what we learn from it. And then, and then how we can use that data. I mean, becomes this can become a really interesting story. And, and but you want to think about how you present it. And that here, I mean, I've been talking about assertion evidence. It might be that I don't necessarily give the assertion at the beginning of the scene. In some cases, the audience isn't ready for the assertion. In other cases, the assertion is controversial and I've got to make, I've got to build credibility with the audience before I, I, I show it. So sometimes I will just start with the data and then start explaining that. Here's the y-axis, this is what that means. Here's the x-axis, here's this curve, that curve. So a couple of, a couple of TED speakers that I, you know, your audience may be familiar with. One is Hans Rosling first TED talk that he gave and he, he shows this, I mean, incredible graph. And it's a graph that changes with time over populations in the world, different, different countries. And from 1960 to like 2008, how long did people live? And then, and it changes and you see the world I mean, you, you get this kind of wonderful and in some cases tragic history of the world, uh, you know, that occurs. Another one your audience may not be as familiar with, it's one of my favorite TED speakers, is Cheryl Hayashi. You go to TED, Google Spiders, her, her talk comes up and it starts out and it does. I mean, she does really well at reaching a broad audience about spiders and she's particularly interested in the silk that comes from spiders and how we could possibly use that silk and how strong that silk is. And if you look in the middle of that talk, six minutes into it, she presents two graphs that I think are a tour de force for presenting data. And I love to, I don't know, I've watched, I've watched that sequence, it's about two or three minutes, 
I probably watched it 30 times, at least, at least 30 times, maybe more. And I never, I never get tired of it, but she just really so thoughtful about how she sequenced the data. And so she uses animation, but it's not, it's not this, not this unprofessional animation flying in. It's just, it's just things will appear. Uh, and sometimes things will disappear, but it is all to explain the data points that she has. And, and thank you for those two examples. And um, you made me curious now because uh, Hans Roslick, of course, I'm very much familiar with, with his work and an excellent presenter when, when it comes to presenting communicating data. I am not aware of the second example you gave. So I'm curious now, I'm going to check it out after this conversation. Now, uh, Michael, we talked about many things. Let's also talk about resistance because I'm pretty sure, you tell me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure that over the years, you have received some, some resistance from scientists, engineers, people who maybe think that this is a bit simplistic, people who've been following a certain approach for so long and then they resist to change. Can you tell me more about your experience with resistance? Maybe how do you go about overcoming some of it? What are your thoughts here? Yeah. Well, Andrea, this is, yeah, this, this is a topic that's fascinating to me. And, and I, I do want to credit uh, someone who has done an incredible amount of work in this field. His name is Everett. Rogers. And in a sense, he single-handedly launched this study that uh, social sciences certainly used called the diffusion of innovation. Fancy name for you've got a new idea. What is the likelihood that that new idea is going to be embraced and accepted? And so he's he, he did a lot of work. He did it with corn seeds in Iowa uh, <laughs> because they developed these corn seeds and, and, and people weren't using them and they couldn't understand because the corn seeds were, they produced better crops. And so that's what he, he really studied and he found out some interesting things. But early on, I saw that this assertion evidence approach just had many advantages that, yeah, you had to, things depend on your audience and your content, but in science and engineering, it was just, oh, so much better than the, the default, the, the typical presentation. And, but I would encounter these people, and a lot of them, I mean, were in powerful positions. I mean, at a university, they'd be head of a course, and they'd say no, or they would be head of a research laboratory, and then they would say no. And, and I learned some things. I learned, one, if you have a new idea, uh, and you present it to people, most of them will initially just say no. It's a natural kind of thing. This is the way I've done it. I have achieved success in my life doing that. I don't want to do something that's different. 
So I think you need to, one, realize that you will receive resistance even when you are proposing an improvement. Number two is not all people react the same way. There are some people when they hear that there's something new, just because of who they are, how much they traveled, just whatever, they will listen because for them, new is not necessarily negative. Now you have to make a case and they have to see advantages, but they, if they think it's possibly has advantages, they will try it. They don't really care what anybody else thinks. They will give it a go. And if it does have advantages, they will use it. And they don't really care what other people think. They, they found that this way is better. And so they're going to use it. Uh, so those people are really important. And they're called in this theory by Rogers, early adopters. And so people who are marketing new products, they look for those in society. I, I would say a lot of them are just, they're, they're people, you will see them in an organization. A lot of them are successful and, and people will look at them and they are people who are respected. And so, and they're just, and they're independent sorts. So that I'd say is important to realize. And then there's some people in an organization and they won't change for anything. I mean, does it matter? They will just continue doing things. And I early on, I found myself just, just, just spending an incredible amount of time trying to persuade those people. And it was reading Rogers' work, I realized, don't worry about them. I mean, just let them go. You're not gonna, you're not gonna persuade everyone. Work on the early adopters, and then there's a there's a group. They'll listen to you. They'll think that's a good idea, but they won't use it until they see the early adopters use it. And then when they see the early adopters use it, then they'll use it. And then the last category, and this is probably the biggest category, they're, they're people, they'll listen to you, they'll nod their heads, they won't use it. But if most people in the organization start using it, oh, then they'll use it, okay? They want to do what most people do. So you realize that it's going to take some time to change an organization. So that's, I would say, philosophically, just to sleep at night, that's one. And then two, how do you get people to, to try it? I, I'd say one thing is, because you know, and, and, I, I, I teach a lot of students, so I have a lot of students who are young, they go do internships, so they start jobs in companies, and they're working under people who are quite a bit older. And so, you know, they, these young people don't have a lot of credibility yet in their careers. And so what I tell them to do is two things. One is, I tell them to ask their supervisor if their company, their organization, their laboratory is just open to new ideas. And that one is like everybody, oh yeah, of course we are. You know, they may, people think they are, but then they, in push comes to something, they aren't, they aren't necessarily. But then, and then I have them then say, well, would you be open to a new way to give a scientific presentation or present our our work and I think it's important that you try a low stakes talk 
You don't want to try the most important proposal presentation that your group is going to give that year because people get real conservative when the stakes are high. But low stakes, you know, at, you know, in our weekly meeting, I thought maybe we could just try this. And, and that, I would say, is, is, is effective. But, you know, a third thing is a lot of people will look at this approach and, and it was what you had said, that it's, they like it as an audience member, but as a presenter, they think it's simplistic. And so I think a big reason in companies is that people use slide decks as notes after a presentation. And so one thing that people, I mean, many, many presenters do not use that is incredibly valuable in PowerPoint is the notes page. And so what I encourage people to do is to create the slide as an assertion evidence slide, and then in the notes page, put all the things that maybe you would have put in that traditional slide. But now you can do it in paragraphs. You can have full citations for sources and things. You can give really valuable information to an audience. You can have a much better notes page than someone who just has a bulleted list because bulleted lists are not particularly effective at communicating. They don't uh, show connections well, as nearly as well as a paragraph does. And they don't, they don't show assumptions and they don't show hierarchy. And so hierarchy, particularly hierarchy and connections are really important. Something you can show in the notes page, but it's hard to show in a bulleted list. This is so true. Also in, in our experience, Michael, with business presenters in business presentations, when people start making their distinction between slides and handouts or, or documents. They're not the same thing that should be separated. When you start doing that, even if the audience needs to have more details, if that's the case, but let's say that they need to have more details, often that's the case, then we are not here, we are not saying that you should not give them the information. All we are saying is, you shouldn't put all the information on your slides, but then what you can do, absolutely. You can use the notes page section and, and, and feature on, on PowerPoint, and then you have a handout that you can share with your audience before, during, after the presentation, depending on what works best in any particular context, and there you can give all the information they need. And what we find also in our experience is that when people start making this distinction, then their bosses, their clients, their audiences will feel much more inclined to accept this new way of presenting and give you a chance to work. Yeah, I agree with you 100%. Michael, let's, let's also, we are getting closer to the end of our conversation. I'm, I'm in love with books. So in addition to your own books, and as I said, for our listeners, the craft of scientific presentations, highly recommended. I think you also wrote the, is it the craft of scientific writing, if I'm not wrong? 
Oh, that's, that's true, Andre. Though, thank you. I mean, I love, I, I, I love writing. In fact, writing was what I first got into. Uh, I, I started as a, as a engineer, and I probably wasn't a great engineer. I did okay in school, but I wanted, I wanted to try my hand at writing. And so I, I earned a degree in fiction writing. And then I ended up blending writing with engineering and science. And then I became very interested in presentations, just yeah. how we communicate. Yeah, so for you, it's writing, presentations. Are there any other, um, if you think about what we've talked about today, in addition now to your own resources, any other um, books, or it doesn't have to be a book, it could be a video, a presentation, yeah. an article. If it's a book, if you have a book in mind, I love that, mm -hmm. that, that you would recommend to, to our listeners today. Yeah, well, Gar Reynolds. I like Gar Reynolds. I think he's uh, just just beautiful. So people aren't familiar with him. Gar Reynolds is one of the people behind, uh, I think, a lot of the designs at TED, or at least his principles are. And so just has a really good eye for how to lay out, let's say, a slide. So I, re I really enjoy, enjoy him. And I, I did, I, I think I mentioned earlier, uh, Edward Tufte's, it's a, it's a real thin book, but the cognitive style of PowerPoint, where that was, that was the, probably one of the first things that challenged, challenged PowerPoint's defaults. That yeah, but both both of them, Gar Reynolds has always been a a huge source of inspiration for me and for us at Ideas on Stage, Presentation Zen, Presentation Zen Design, the Naked Presenter from a Delivery Perspective, yeah. and Edward Tufte. I I've read, I also read a few years ago the the visual display of quantitative information, yeah. which yeah. is a masterpiece when it comes to data display. All right, Michael, if anybody wants to connect with you, where, where do they find you? What should they do? Well, you know, go to Google, type in engineering presentations. That'll come to my, my site on the assertion evidence approach or type in engineering writing. Uh, that'll come to my site, thecraftofscientificwriting.com. And uh, you can, I mean, you can find me at Penn State, but you can find you, you can find my email address at those places. Perfect. And what's the what's the one thing I always like to to ask this question? And sometimes it it leads to new insights. Sometimes it doesn't, which is not a problem if that's the case. We've talked about so many things, Michael. If you if you would like your your our audience today, our listeners, to remember one thing, to take away one thing from this conversation. What is it? Mm. Just, just one. Yeah. You know, if I just had to say one thing, just about presenting, it could even be true about writing, but it is, it's, everybody says, think about the audience, but it's kind of a, I don't, I don't think people really think about the audience. And, 
I like to think about this question of why. Why are they going to listen to you? What is in it for them? If you think about your content and just think about how you could you could shape that content or choose from that content, what would be most valuable for them? Yeah, and that, 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 that's great. I, I agree, Michael. We, we, we always tell our, our listeners, our clients, our audience that the foundation of the presentation process is all about understanding how to understand the audience, their needs and the context so that we can then prepare a presentation that from any perspective is related, relevant to them and their needs. It's their presentation, not ours. It's the audience's presentation. So Michael, thank you very much. I very much enjoyed this conversation. I appreciate your time and you sharing your insights. Is there anything else, any final messages, any any asks that you have for our audience, anything at all that you would like to share with our listeners today before we close? It is, just remember that your big goal is how much the audience understands, remembers, and believes of your content. And to realize that PowerPoint's defaults don't help you achieve those that even though you might use powerpoint do not hesitate to challenge those defaults to come up with a design of visual aids or just or just a, a black screen for that particular scene that helps that audience understand remember and believe perfect michael thank you very much all the very best and let's keep in touch okay sir certainly if you enjoyed this episode of the Ideas on Stage podcast, there are many more you might like. So please subscribe, leave us a review, and tell us what you think. You can find many more ideas on business communication at ideasonstage.com or by searching for Ideas on Stage on iTunes, YouTube, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thanks for listening, and goodbye for now.